there may be teardrops to shed so while there's moonlight and music and love and romance let's face the music and dance dance let's face the music and dance Hello, I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to Let's Face the Music, a podcast exploring the stories behind the standards of the great American songbook. There may be teardrops to shed, so while there's moonlight and music and love Are you ready? Let's face the music. Today's song is They Can't Take That Away From Me. Words by Ira Gershwin, music by George Gershwin, and performed by Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. The way you wear your hat The way you sip your tea The memory of all that No, no can't take that away from me. This is Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong performing They Can't Take That Away From Me on their 1956 album Ella and Louis. And even though this album also features songs by Irving Berlin and Hoagy Carmichael, among others, this George and Ira Gershwin song is perhaps the album's finest moment. Some might argue it is the perfect duet for these two jazz titans. They Can't Take That Away From Me had been prominently showcased twice before, both times in major motion pictures. In fact, both times sung by Fred Astaire to his co-star and dance partner, Ginger Rogers. But for both of these cinematic presentations, something wasn't quite right, leading to creative disappointment, bitterness, and jealousy. It wasn't until this third major version of the song, performed by Ella and Louie, that everyone involved was finally satisfied. And ironically, this third attempt took almost no time at all. In early 1934, a well-known composer began acting very strangely. He first complained of horrible headaches and dizziness. Then he started having hallucinations. He told friends he could smell burning rubber and was repeatedly overwhelmed by nausea. These symptoms continued for a few years, and then one night at a dinner party at his brother's house, the pain in his head became so great that he dropped his fork and spilled food onto his clothes. His brother's wife was very embarrassed and loudly exclaimed, Get him out of here! The composer was led away from the table, and he sat outside on the curb, his head in his hands, ashamed and hurting. This pain he was experiencing caused the composer to do bizarre, unexplainable things. Once while driving, he tried to push a passenger out of his moving car. Another time, he was introduced to a friend's new girlfriend, and the composer spent the entire night sitting next to the woman and rubbing her leg. Not in a sexual way, but more like someone who was desperate for comfort. 
His doctors were not able to determine what was wrong, so they concluded the pain was psychological. The composer's headaches became worse, soon moving into seizures, and in early July of 1937, he went into a coma. While in this comatose state, doctors were able to diagnose that he had, in fact, a very advanced brain tumor. The composer was George Gershwin, and four days after slipping into a coma, he died. He was 38 years old. George Gershwin's death brought to an end a 13-year streak of successful songs, Broadway shows, and film scores written with his brother Ira, beginning with 1924's Lady Be Good on Broadway and ending with 1937's score for the film Shall We Dance. George Gershwin began his music career bringing attention to other people's songs. In the early 1900s, publishers made lots of money by selling sheet music, so they needed performers to play these songs, delighting a listener enough that he or she would be convinced to buy the sheet music, so they could in turn play it on their own home piano. Young George Gershwin had a knack for making a song sound perhaps better than it really was, so at the age of 15, he began work as a song plugger. By the age of 17, he had written his own songs and finally had a few published, enticing him to leave the song-plugging world and focus entirely on composing music. His older brother Ira had shown talent for writing poetry and short stories, but it was George who thought Ira's poems could probably be turned into song lyrics. After a few slow starts, the two began putting together scores for full stage shows. Their first show as a songwriting duo was Lady Be Good in 1924, and it starred dancing sensation Fred Astaire, along with Fred's sister, Adele. It was a hit show with hit songs, fascinating rhythm and the title song among them. More successful shows followed for George and Ira, such as Strike Up the Band and Funny Face. And then in 1930, they wrote a musical called Girl Crazy, which happened to star another accomplished dancer, Ginger Rogers. And as we will soon see, both Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers would go on to play important roles in the story of They Can't Take That Away From Me. For the songs George and Ira wrote together, George's music usually came first. Melodies seemed to flow freely for him. He once boasted that he wrote at least six songs a day, just to get the bad ones out of his system. Ira preferred to write his lyrics after having the tune first, so George would share new melodies with his brother, who would work on creating verses for an exact fit. The two brothers would often sit together, George at the piano, giving Ira melodies around which to fit his lyrics. One day, George played a four-note melody for his brother. Ira listened, thought about it, and then reportedly said to George, If you can give me some more notes preceding that melody, I have an idea. So George added two notes, giving Ira this. And from that, Ira came up with The Way You Wear Your Hat the word hat hitting the higher note, creating the image of a hat on top of someone's head. Then George played. Now Ira matched the lower note in this melody with the image of a cup being held at chest level for the lyric, The Way You Sip Your Tea. And thus, the song was born. It has been noted that this was a rare time when one of Ira's lyrical ideas helped form a George Gershwin melody. And while the melody is a memorable one, 
it might be the lyrics that really make the song what it is. Larissa Maestro is a Nashville cellist, vocalist, composer, and arranger. When it comes to They Can't Take That Away From Me, she finds the structure of the lyrics to be the song's true magic. There's no denying that as a songwriting duo, these two were top-notch. But to me, this song is about the lyrics. And the thing that I love the most about these lyrics is that Ira Gershwin sets it up saying a tiny thing and a tiny thing and then a huge thing. For example, the way you hold your knife, the way we dance till three, small things, teeny things. And then the way you changed my life. Oh, I want to cry. <laughs> it's that understanding that all the small things are what make the huge thing huge. The, the things in those in those tiny moments that make love so beautiful. And he really got it. He really captured it. Man, Ira Gershwin. What a writer. Pianist Michael Feinstein worked for Ira Gershwin beginning in 1977 until Ira died in 1983. Feinstein was technically Ira Gershwin's archivist, helping him organize his massive collection of musical scores and records. But he also learned so much about the Gershwin songs during this time just from talking to Ira. For the PBS program Broadway or Bust, Michael Feinstein critiques an aspiring musical theater performer after hearing him sing, They Can't Take That Away From Me. Now, Ira Gershwin, who wrote that song, I worked for for six years. So I knew the author of the words of the song. And one of the things that he always told me is that the verses were as important to him as the chorus, because they tell you more dramatically about the character. Because anytime we sing a song, it's about a character. This brings up an interesting point about the verses of songs from this era. Most American standards do have verses that precede the chorus, but in popular recordings, the verses are often cut for time. So often, the chorus is the only part of the song that is immortalized and cemented in the public's consciousness. This is true of They Can't Take That Away From Me. Although rarely sung, the verse is quite fascinating on its own. The version of this song that Ella and Louie recorded as a duet in 1956 does not include the verse to allow both performers ample time to sing. But when Ella Fitzgerald recorded They Can't Take That Away From Me on her own for a 1959 Gershwin album, she wasn't sharing the song with anyone. So there was more room in that arrangement to include the opening verse. And here is how it sounded. Our romance won't end on a sorrowful note Though by tomorrow you're gone The song is ended But as the songwriter wrote The melody lingers on They may take you Ira's lyric there in the verse is, The song is ended, but as the songwriter wrote, the melody lingers on. The songwriter he references is Irving Berlin, 
And this was Ira Gershwin giving a nod to a fellow lyricist by quoting directly from Berlin's own work, a song titled The Song Is Ended. And lucky for us, Ella Fitzgerald recorded a version of that song too. The song is ended, but the melody lingers on. You and the song. Michael Feinstein continues his critique. One thing, you sang a wrong word. Oh, which one was that? a wrong lyric. What you did was take it for, that came from a Sinatra version that Sinatra did later. It's a little word, but it drove Ira Gershwin crazy. And it was, we may never, never meet again on the bumpy road to love. It was not that bumpy road, because Sinatra would always sing the that, bumpy. and he would make it hip. Okay. But he did it for okay. emphasis. And if, you, if somebody is nitpicking, th that may bother him. If you did that for Richard Rogers, one of his songs, <laughs> he would probably have a meltdown. Okay. Of course, he was exactly right about Frank Sinatra's recording of the song. We may never, never meet again on that bumpy road. To love. Still I'll always, always keep the memory of the way you hold your knife. They Can't Take That Away From Me was conceived as part of a set of songs meant for the Gershwin's next project, a film called Shall We Dance? George Gershwin was a very generous man who gave to many charities, but also spent lots of money on his friends and himself. In the fall of 1936, George was in dire need of money to keep up his expensive lifestyle. So he was determined that this new film project succeed. It just had to. Aiding in the film's likely success were the two lead actors. For Shall We Dance happened to be the seventh film pairing for the Gershwin's old friends, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. But because it was an Astaire-Rogers film, the pressure to produce a score of quality songs was very high. The six previous Astaire Rogers films had all done very well and had featured songs by major composers of the day. 1934's The Gate of Orsay had songs by Cole Porter. 1935's Top Hat had a score by Irving Berlin. And 1936's Swing Time featured the work of songwriting partners Dorothy Fields and Jerome Kern. It was fortunate that the Gershwins could see these films and could study what had worked and what hadn't. But George and Ira were expected to top the success of these six films, so care had to be taken. They couldn't simply repeat what had come before, but they also didn't want to stray too far from what had been a winning formula. As a huge fan of the films of Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, I have no problem saying that I find the plot of Shall We Dance very confusing and convoluted. The story is clearly only a setup to get the two main characters to an emotional place where singing, they can't take that away from me, even makes sense. But George and Ira were so proud of this song, they thought it would be worth all the trouble. So how do we get to this emotional climax? This is the story. Follow along, if you can. Fred Astaire plays famous Russian ballet dancer Peter P. Peters, known professionally as Petrov, who is eager to break into more modern jazz dancing. While in Paris, Peter sees a photo of Ginger Rogers' character Linda Keane, a popular tap dancer, and hatches a plan to meet her. Peter's manager, Jeffrey, is not amused. Who is that girl? Who is she? Where did you ever meet her? That's just it. I haven't been able to meet her yet. Oh, but I hope to dance with her someday. Dance? With her? Sure. Are you mad? Look here, are you sure that she hasn't tried to persuade you to stay on here? I told you I haven't even met her. 
Meanwhile, Linda Keen is tired of show business, especially having to rebuke the men she's paired with, who always try for more than just dancing. She expresses her dissatisfaction to her manager, Arthur. And it's all your fault, too. I was a happy, peaceful girl until you discovered me. Fame, name and lights. I never should have listened to you. I'll quit. I'll retire from the stage forever. Peter shows up outside her hotel room, hoping to meet Linda and charm her into dancing with him. It doesn't work. What's a petrol? Just the Russian ballet's greatest dancer. Oh, fine. Well, tell him to go back to Moscow. He probably only wants to say he's seen a picture of me and can't live without me. Peter finds out Linda is sailing from Paris to New York, and he hops onto the same boat, hoping to get a second chance with her. Before the ship can set sail, he runs into Denise, a woman he is desperately trying to get away from. It turns out Peter's manager, Jeffrey, has lied to Denise, telling her that Peter is married to Linda Keene, dashing any hopes of romance. I feel very bad because I'm not going with you. So do I. Is your wife going with you? My wife? I haven't any wife. Jeffrey told me it was a secret for professional reason. Oh, Jeffrey. Hoping to keep Linda from quitting show business, her manager, Arthur, takes this tiny marriage rumor and spreads it all over the ship. Fellows, listen to this. Lady Tarrington left this morning on the SS Marseille for a trip to America to visit her friends, Mr. and Mrs. Petrov, who are aboard the SS Queen Anne. Upon further questioning, it was learned that the Petrovs have been married for some time, their marriage not having heretofore been disclosed for professional reasons. <laughs> mm, that must be the musical comedy star he's with so much, Linda Keene. By George, you're right. Then Linda's manager, Arthur, goes even further. He takes a wax mannequin made in the likeness of Linda and photographs it in bed next to a sleeping Peter. The photo makes the papers, and now Peter's manager, Jeffrey, realizes he also has to keep up the charade. I've come to tell you, Miss Keene, that we will not tolerate your insinuations. Stay where you are while I compose myself. I suppose you and that toe dancer think this whole thing's a good joke. Well, it wasn't altogether the toe Mr. Petrov's fault. Oh, it wasn't. A man in Petrov's position is besieged by women. Oh, naturally. And there was one persistent wretch who, uh, well, to get rid of her, he said he was married to you. To get rid of her? Exactly. He had to choose somebody, and he felt that a person like you wouldn't mind. So he used me to... Exactly. Through all of this, Peter and Linda start to actually fall in love, although they are both too proud to admit this to each other. They agree that the surefire way to stop the publicity about the fake marriage is to get a very public divorce. But there's only one problem. They aren't actually married. The only difference between us and other married people is that we can't even get a divorce. If I really could get a divorce from you before I marry Jim, that would put a stop to all these embarrassing falsehoods. It certainly would. Peter, you've got to marry me. Why, Linda, this is so sudden. If we get married now... I could start divorce proceedings in the morning. They sail to New Jersey, where they are married on the spot. On the boat back, they nearly admit to each other that they don't really want this fake relationship to end. Well, tomorrow will be all straightened out. You'll be on your way, and I'll be on my way. Where? Well, I've got to get back to being a bachelor again. Sort of catch up with my usual gay life. Forget all this. I hope you enjoy your gaiety. Thanks. I hope you enjoy your divorce. Thanks. I didn't know getting married was so depressing. I'm sorry now I asked you. 
Oh, that's all right. I'll get over it. Oh, of course. Our romance won't end on a sorrowful note. Oh, by tomorrow you're gone. The song is ended, but as the songwriter wrote, the melody lingers on. If you want to know how the film ends, well, there is more confusion, more scheming, but finally Peter and Linda get to dance together, and their love for each other is revealed. The end. But not everyone lived happily ever after. The way you wear your hat, the way you sip your tea. Fred Astaire's heartfelt performance of They Can't Take That Away From Me is delivered as he stands next to Ginger Rogers leaning against a pole on a ferry boat from New Jersey back to New York. It's a beautiful rendition, and the song gives some justification for the tangled plot that came before it. But for two performers known best as dancers, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers do not dance a step for the entire song. The two actors don't even leave their spots. When George Gershwin saw his beloved song had been given this very static scene, he was not happy. He expressed his disappointment to close friends, but by that point, there was nothing he could do. Unlike working on a Broadway show where the songwriters are involved every step of the way and their input is taken seriously, a Hollywood film is inevitably in the hands of editors, directors, and producers. Songwriters provide the music, and then their job is done. However, after George Gershwin died, it seemed like They Can't Take That Away From Me might get a second chance to be featured in a film in a manner the song truly deserved. In 1948, producer Arthur Freed was making a film called Easter Parade, starring Gene Kelly and Judy Garland. During the film's pre-production period, Gene Kelly broke his ankle playing volleyball, and Freed realized he needed to find an adequate replacement. He was able to coax Fred Astaire out of an early retirement, and Easter Parade became the classic film we know today. In fact, Astaire and Garland were such naturals together and got along so well making the film that before the production was complete, there were already plans to pair the two in a second film, a story of a husband and wife dance team called The Barclays of Broadway. But filming Easter Parade took a great toll on Judy Garland, and she became too exhausted and ill to even attend rehearsals for the second film. Before long, Judy Garland was dropped from the picture. Once again, Arthur Freed had to replace one of his leading actors, and this time he had the genius idea of putting Fred Astaire back on the screen with his old dance partner, Ginger Rogers. Freed flew the script to Rogers Ranch in Oregon. He promised to pay her double what he was going to pay Judy Garland, and just like that, Ginger Rogers was in. Arthur Freed also had an inspired pairing in mind for the music of the Barclays of Broadway. He teamed up lyricist Ira Gershwin with composer Harry Warren, already very famous for songs like I Only Have Eyes For You and Chattanooga Choo Choo. Ira Gershwin and Harry Warren wrote a full score for the film, But in production, it was decided that because Ginger Rogers was now starring in the film with Fred Astaire, they would bring back an old song with lyrics by Ira Gershwin, a song that didn't get a proper Astaire-Rogers dance the first time. So once again, Fred Astaire sang to Ginger Rogers about the way she wears her hat and the way she sips her tea. But this time, he was dressed in full tux, she in full ball gown, and there was choreography 
aplenty. So thanks to Gene Kelly's broken ankle and Judy Garland's poor health, they can't take that away from me finally got the Astaire Rogers dance treatment that George Gershwin always wanted, and audiences loved it. Composer Harry Warren, however, was not thrilled with the idea. He was finally getting to write a score of songs with Ira Gershwin, and the song that received the most attention was one he had nothing to do with. Jealous and bitter from the experience, Harry Warren would never work with Ira Gershwin again. After learning of the death of his brother and songwriting partner at such a young age, Ira Gershwin was understandably devastated. Michael Feinstein sees the power this song holds, how it comforted Ira in the months after his brother had died. They Can't Take That Away From Me is a song that was nominated for an Academy Award. It's a song that uh, George and Ira absolutely loved. They were very proud of it from its beginnings. And George did not live to see the nomination of They Can't Take That Away From Me. Gershwin had a brain tumor. And suddenly, to see this man's life snuffed out at the age of 38 was incomprehensible to most people. Of all of those who were affected, the person who was most affected was George's older brother, Ira. It was the song, They Can't Take That Away From Me, that helped bring Ira back to life. After George's passing, Ira was listening to these recordings from Shall We Dance and the recording of They Can't Take That Away From Me. And he said that he felt as if George was speaking to him and saying to him, you've got to go on, you've got to keep working. And Iris said that that was the first time that he felt that he might be able to continue on in the world. While the song is obviously about romantic love, Ira Gershwin couldn't ignore the fact that death had taken his brother away from him. But what death could not take were all the memories of growing up with George and then writing songs with George. Those were Iris to keep forever. It is a shame that such a beautiful and poignant song like They Can't Take That Away From Me was given two large-scale attempts at really shining, but both times the songwriters involved in the project were left angry and dissatisfied. But in 1956, there was a man who had an idea about how to give this song another chance at being heard in the manner it deserved. His idea was for two very famous jazz singers with two very different voices to record it. The man's name was Norman Granz. A white Los Angeles native and the son of two Jewish immigrants, the most important things to Norman Granz were racial equality and jazz. In fact, he once said, quote, any book on my life would start with my basic philosophy of fighting racial prejudice, and jazz was my way of doing that. Norman Granz began as a concert promoter, organizing jam sessions between the hottest jazz musicians of the day. These jam sessions grew, and by July of 1944, he had expanded to the Philharmonic Auditorium in Los Angeles. He called these concerts Jazz at the Philharmonic. Having a diverse group of musicians on stage was never a problem for Grands. If you were a musician who didn't like playing next to someone because of their race, you were free to play somewhere else. But it was equally important for Grands to have a diverse audience and not just a crowd full of white people. He elaborated on this idea when he spoke to Benny Lum in 1960. I never had a problem with having a mixed show. 
<clears throat> anywhere where I played, my big problem was having the audience sound segregated because I think that that was far more important. So when I first began my jazz concert, and even before that, my jam sessions, I always took the position that um, unless the audience were non-segregated, I wouldn't perform. The jazz at the Philharmonic concerts grew in popularity, and this gave Granz the power to enforce his policy of zero discrimination. But more about Norman Granz shortly, because he was not the first producer to think the pairing of Louis Armstrong with Ella Fitzgerald was a good idea. In 1946, vocalist and trumpeter Louis Armstrong was already a legend. Vocalist Ella Fitzgerald was a rising star, and both were signed to Decca Records. Also at Decca Records, producer Milt Gabler, who you may remember as the man who took a chance releasing Billie Holiday's recording of Strange Fruit in 1939. Gabler was ready to take another chance, and he booked this young singer with the voice of Satin, Ella Fitzgerald, in a recording studio with the beloved jazz man whose voice some have described as sackcloth, Louis Armstrong. The contrast in their voices and their immediate rapport in the studio worked magic. Their first single together was a song written by Freddie James and Larry Stock called You Won't Be Satisfied Until You Break My Heart. You're only happy tearing all my dreams apart Oh, you won't be satisfied until you break my heart No, you won't be satisfied until you break my heart never satisfied until the start. You might wonder why a seasoned performer like Louis Armstrong would agree to work with a relative newcomer like Ella Fitzgerald. It could be that he knew his career wouldn't hurt from dipping into a younger listener base, but it's more likely that Louis Armstrong heard what most of us hear when Ella Fitzgerald sings. When Larissa Maestro was in high school and taking jazz voice lessons, her teacher asked who her favorite jazz singer was. Larissa immediately replied, Ella Fitzgerald. But Larissa couldn't put into words why she had chosen that singer. And she told me, okay, go home and listen to Ella Fitzgerald and tell me why she's your favorite. So I did. And I realize now what an incredible lesson that is and how much I've learned about myself as a singer just and a musician, just from thinking about who do I love to listen to and really exploring why. And for me, Ella is a perfect singer. Her intonation is perfect. Her diction is perfect. Her rhythm is perfect. Milt Gabler thought it might be interesting to contrast this voice of perfection with a voice of another sort. And then you pair her with someone like Louis Armstrong, who, like, basically, in a lot of ways, invented scat singing, which Ella became known for. Contrast her with this voice that is, in a lot of ways, technically imperfect. His tone is gravelly. He talks into singing sometimes, but it is pure joy, the way that he performs. So this this contrast of this like pitch perfect tone with this free way of being, it's just this amazing yin and yang <laughs> locked together perfectly. 
Ella and Louie would go on to record five more singles sporadically over the next eight years. When they first recorded in 1946, Louis Armstrong was 45 years old and had been in the business almost 30 years. Ella Fitzgerald was 29 years old and had been singing barely more than a decade. But even with Louis's long career and years of experience, there was never a question of, can Ella keep up? Of course she could. She was an expert at improvisation. So she was creating while she was also interpreting, and that is amazing. And she did it better than, I would say, most jazz instrumentalists. And if we had to guess where she picked up this knack for improvisation, one could argue it was in large part from years of looking up to Louis Armstrong as a vocalist, as a trumpet player, as a cultural role model. But how did these two performers find themselves working together again? Norman Granz became Ella Fitzgerald's manager in the mid-1940s, and by 1956, he thought it was the right time to start his own record label, mainly to showcase Ella Fitzgerald. The label was Verve Records. Louis Armstrong's own recording contract with Columbia Records ended in 1956, and his manager arranged a short-term deal with Norman Granz for Louis to join Verve. Now with both performers on his very own label, Norman Granz had a big idea, as he relayed on NPR. My idea was to record two of them as much as I could because I had all kinds of ideas for utilizing Louis with Ella. And so we did some good standards together. To bring his idea to fruition, and to make sure Ella and Louis were in the same place at the same time, Granz booked both performers to play a Jazz at the Philharmonic concert held at the Hollywood Bowl on August 15, 1956. The following day, he got them into Capitol Studios. And what happened next happened very quickly. Eleven songs, one day of recording. Larissa Maestro explains why it had to be such a quick session. All of this first album of duets that they did was recorded in a single day because they they both had incredibly busy touring schedules. So they had to just get in, get it done, which is (laughs) bonkers. That rarely happens anymore. People spend years and years and years making albums. This was just, they chose some songs and wrote some charts and just went in and played them. It's a testament also to how much they were working and how second nature it was for them to just walk in and make something happen. It is reported that Ella was thrilled to be working with Louis again, and this time for a full album. She allowed him to choose the songs they would record, and she sang the songs in the keys that Louis preferred, even if they weren't the best keys for her. The backing band was the Oscar Peterson Trio, so this meant Ella had to spend the entire session with someone from her romantic past. Fun fact, Ella Fitzgerald was married to the bassist Ray Brown. The The bassist on these recordings is her ex-husband. Um, they remained very close friends. Yes, even being forced to spend the day with her ex-husband wasn't going to dampen Ella's spirits. The sessions seemed to be a good time for everyone involved, and they all had great respect and affection for the man who had brought them together, Norman Granz. Louis Armstrong even gives Granz an off-the-cuff shout-out on the lively recording of the song Stompin' at the Savoy. In Norman Granz, Ella and Louis found a kindred spirit, a man a white man at that, 
who was as passionate as they were about breaking down the walls of normalized racism in the music business. Both of them were in positions at the time in which they were doing their best to desegregate their industry, desegregate the audiences that they were playing for. Louis Armstrong famously uh, boycotted performing in his hometown of New Orleans because audiences were segregated there. And here you have an album where every musician on the album is black and they're performing pop songs, basically, all written by white people. And the musicianship and the excellence on this recording is undeniable. It was an important step to desegregation within the music industry at the time. Musician Tom Maxwell has written, quote, It was perhaps more of a cultural leap that two black performers could be considered the best interpreters of white show tunes, desegregating American popular culture in just 11 songs. The way your smile just beams, the way you sing off key. They Can't Take That Away From Me was recorded on August 16, 1956 at Capitol Studios in Hollywood, produced by Norman Granz. Backing Ella and Louie is the Oscar Peterson Trio, consisting of Oscar Peterson on piano, Ray Brown on bass, and Herb Ellis on guitar. Playing drums for the session was Buddy Rich. Still I'll always, always keep the memory They Can't Take That Away From Me and the 10 other songs they recorded that day became the 1956 Verb album, simply titled Ella and Louie. Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong would record another album of standards in 1957, cleverly titled Ella and Louis Again. And then in 1958, the pair recorded a final album, this time selections from the Gershwin opera Porgy and Bess. Both Ella and Louis would look back at the music they made together with fondness. Every chance she got, Ella spoke out about her respect for Louis's style and his efforts to spread the sound of jazz all over the world. This is a view she held many years after working with him, as she details in a 1971 interview with Bill McNeil. Looking back over the whole history of American popular music, who who are the great figures that stand out in your mind? I think, as far as American music, I think one of our greatest men as far as making American music popular, I would have to say Louis Armstrong, because I have traveled overseas And to me, he is like an ambassador. And no matter where we have played, everybody knows Louis Armstrong. And they understand what he sings, and he has done so much, I feel, for American music. And in 1968, when Louis Armstrong appeared on the long-running BBC radio show Desert Island Discs, one of the records he chose to bring on his imaginary desert island was their version of a song from Porgy and Bass. Well, back to records. What's uh, what's the next one? Well, uh, here's a record uh, that Ella and I made. I like very much. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah, Porgy and Bess. Now, it's uh, one here we do together. Which one? That Bess, you is my woman now. That's a pretty thing. Let's do that. It took almost 20 years for everything to finally go right for They Can't Take That Away From Me. But what made it work this time? The atmosphere of playfulness and fun in the studio certainly made a difference. 
Just listen to Ella Fitzgerald describe the mood of their recording session. You know, it never seemed like we were really recording because he was always so happy. The same way he carried his handkerchief when he did a regular show. He came in like it was nothing to it. Just gonna have a ball. And I would always mess up because I'd be so fascinated watching him that sometimes I wouldn't come in on time on my song, you know, because he'd go through the whole motion just like he would really sing, you know, sing it, Ella, you know, and, and he'd be talking and cracking and making jokes and while he's talking. You don't know whether you should sing or laugh. So, yes, Ella let Louis choose the songs and pick the keys, but she trusted him and knew he would give as much as she did. It's the simple concept of a group of creative people exchanging ideas back and forth. It's not a bad lesson to learn. If only the producers of Shall We Dance had asked George Gershwin how he saw Fred and Ginger's scene playing out. Or if Harry Warren had been asked how he felt about a dead man's song being wedged into his own musical score. Simply consult the creatives. But maybe attempts were made to do this. We don't really know. You and I weren't there. But isn't that the charm of Ella and Louie's version? It's like you and I are there. Just sitting in on a group of amazing musicians, spending a day playing songs they like, and listening to each other. A conversation in music. Larissa Maestro agrees. That's an actual interaction that you're hearing. It's so cool to like hear people interacting with each other and making something beautiful together and it being imperfect and perfect at the same time. Let's Face the Music is brought to you by We Own This Town. Find out more at letsfacethemusic.show. Our theme music is performed by Ella Fitzgerald and Nelson Riddle and written by Irving Berlin. A special thanks to Larissa Maestro for discussing with us her love of Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. And thank you for listening.